Hello, I'm Stuart Chittenden, and this is Lives, a show about conversation, community, and the people that bring community to life. My guest today is Amy Sandine, Executive Director of Prairie Loft Center for Outdoor and Agricultural Learning in Hastings, Nebraska. Amy Sandine is the Executive Director of Prairie Loft Center for Outdoor and Agricultural Learning in Hastings, Nebraska. Amy grew up in Hastings, then worked with nonprofits in St. Paul, Minneapolis for 18 years before moving back to her roots in 2008 to help establish Prairie Loft. Amy's professional background is in experiential education and nonprofit growth and management. She has worked with schools, museums, outdoor education centers, wilderness programs, and other nonprofits in Minnesota, Wisconsin, Massachusetts, and Nebraska. Amy serves as chair of the Humanities Nebraska Council and is an adjunct instructor with Hastings College and a community catalyst host through the Sherwood Foundation Rural Community Partnership. Amy also serves on the Give Hastings Day Planning Committee, the Hastings Area Chamber Agribusiness Committee, and the Central Community College Ag Advisory Board. Amy is a musician and photographer and loves sharing outdoor experiences with others. Amy, welcome to the show. Thank you so much, Stuart. Could you describe the Prairie Loft Center? Prairie Loft is a magical place in the middle of everywhere. (laughs) Prairie Loft is a place where we do farm-based outdoor education for all ages, all abilities, all backgrounds, all interests. And we really work to hold space for shared discovery of all kinds. We're located just on the edge of Hastings, Nebraska, and it is actually on a site that used to be the working farm for the state mental hospital for many years. We have been renovating the site, buildings, acres, fields, and pasture to use for demonstration, education, and all kinds of community gathering and engagement for about 11 years now. What's there? So if I go there, or if any listener goes and drives there, what are they going to encounter? Depending on the day, you're going to encounter something different anytime you go. Uh, We do have some original buildings from the time that it was a farm, and we have been renovating those to use for many years into the future. And so there is a horse barn that's now used for programming, a um, machine shed, and a workshop. And we're using those when we do have scheduled events, whether it's family programs, field trips, summer camps, private events, community events, that kind of thing. Some days there's not much going on unless we've got people in the community garden or our groundskeeping crew out there beautifying the place. In addition to the eight acres where our buildings are, we also manage an additional 65 acres in partnership with the state of Nebraska. And that includes pasture and creek beds and ponds and no-till farm fields that we can use for production and education and community engagement in that way, too. It's a beautiful spot. People arrive and I hear, wow, and I hear, this is amazing, and I didn't know this existed in a place like this so close to town. And we're thrilled that we've got 75 acres right there on the edge of Hastings to really create that sort of aha experience. You've suggested an intriguing history. And I wonder if you might just give us a little dash through the decades. Absolutely. So as I mentioned, there was a state mental hospital just on the edge of Hastings starting in the 1870s, 1880s. And 
quite a large campus just across the railroad tracks from where the farm is and was at the time. They had their own post office. They were a community of their own with self-sufficient in every way. And the patients worked in the tannery, dairy, the bakery, the cannery, the laundry, all of that. So it was occupational therapy really before there was such a thing. And the farm was very much a part of that. So all of the food to feed more than a thousand people for more than 80 years was grown right there on the farm where Prairie Loft is situated now. And all of the patients who were part of the farm experience and the workers were doing that as part of their therapy, part of the routine that was in their um, treatment. It's interesting, actually, I'll just a quick aside. I found some superintendent reports from the late 1800s into the early 1900s. And at one time, it was the state asylum for the incurably insane. And already the superintendent was arguing to take out incurably because he had this strong belief that there could be a cure. So two years later, the next report took out incurably. It was state asylum for the insane, then state hospital, then regional center. So it went through these different names as they went through modernization of that kind of medicine. By the 1960s, labor laws came into effect, and it wasn't that they didn't want to pay the patients, but rather there wasn't money in the budget to hire administrators to do the payroll. That's my understanding. So in the late 60s, it closed down and the farm was abandoned. By 2000, a couple of different people in the community of Hastings and Adams County started thinking that it could be given new life and used for outdoor education and farm-based education. In a small town, people hear the conversations that others are having, and those conversations came together from these two people with similar ideas. They formed an advisory board. By 2003, they had found who to talk to at the state level about the site, and they leased eight and a half acres for a dollar an acre. They were able to purchase those eight and a half acres by 2004, and the nonprofit formed in 2005. The first programming happened in late 2007. And then staff started doing the day-to-day -day work in 2008 when I was hired in June. And since then, we've had almost 75,000 people on site. It's up to 10,000 people a year and more doing uh, all of the activities focused on our mission, which is to teach agriculture appreciation, outdoor education, cultural connections, and the wise use of natural resources. And that cultural connections piece ties a little bit back to the history of the place, we're no longer in any way affiliated with the regional center history or the state treatment of that, but we want to honor the integrity, the character, the history, and the place that has gotten us to where we are. What is it about um, the programming and the services that you provide that address a, a current social need? So what is that broad idea behind why do we need this kind of education around the outdoors? So many reasons. So a couple of statistics that I sometimes share when I'm talking about this also go back to that historical aspect in one way of explaining why we do what we do. Around 1900, according to the U.S. Census, 40% of Americans lived on farms and produced food for mostly our continent. 40% in 1900. Now that number is about 2% of Americans living on farms, and yet 100% of us still eat. So it's fascinating to delve into and discover how 
things have changed over the last 118, 120 years that three times more Americans have far more food choice with so many fewer people producing that food and producing food for the world in many ways. Much of what is grown here on this continent is shipped around the world and vice versa. So part of what has also happened with that fact that we're about three generations away from the farm is that there's less outdoor time innately scheduled into our day. Yes, it's hard work. No matter how you farm, it is grueling all day, tiring work year round. And there is a benefit to being outdoors. Another statistic is that kids in the U.S. on average spend four to seven hours in front of some kind of electronic screen daily. But in unstructured free time outdoors, the average is six minutes. So six hours in front of a screen versus six minutes outdoors. Technology is part of our lives. That is a given. It is essential for how we live now. And yet there is such thing as too much of a good thing with that blue light of technology that can be harmful. And when we miss out on being outside, we miss a lot of the benefits of the sunlight, the fresh air. Um, being outside helps develop eyesight, physical coordination. Kids are less likely to develop ADD and ADHD. We all, no matter what our age is, have less stress when we spend more time outside. So all that's to say that we are creating these culturally connected experiences for people where we can share those aha moments outside and find a balance between that blue light of technology and the sunlight outdoors. That all kind of sounds fluffy, <laughs> but it does have scientific fact behind it. There have been study after study uh, about getting more play, more outdoor play into education for development, especially for kids, and also outside time for all of us um, to just be healthier, cognitively, mentally, physically, and socially. So those cultural connections, whether it's our grandparents' camp where kids are with their grand people or our family outdoor club where they're coming with two or three generations at a time or school groups having free time outside, we don't get very much of that. So everything that we do at Prairie Loft involves some kind of free time in any kind of structured field trip, camp, workshop. We can all use more of that in a healthy situation that is developing those kinds of connections. Are there any anecdotes or moments when you have seen a child or youth move from that recognition that six hours with a screen is not the same as this experience of the outdoors? Right. Um, one of the lessons that we do is around birds. And it's really fun to be on a farm to teach these things because we can look at all the variety of species of birds and talk about where we are on the edge of the cornfield or the soybean field or the pasture and how that all works together and um, the sustainability of having that variety of habitats and ecosystems together. So one of the things that we do, we have some plush birds that make the sound and we play the sound of the red-tailed hawk and I ask what bird that is. They inevitably say eagle. Because in TV shows and movies and cartoons, you see any kind of flying dinosaur or bald eagle, and it makes the sound of a hawk. Because eagles sound wimpy. <laughs> they have this squeaky little voice, and it's not powerful or scary at all. And so we talk about that, and 
then go outside with these birds and listen and try to find the character of a bird based on what we hear them saying, by the end of the day, they are finding every kind of bird. Sometimes they make it up. You know, apparently we saw a bunch of bald eagles the other day. You know, we that's fine. If they say they saw bald eagles and they were turkey vultures, I'm good with that because they are observing. They're looking up. They are using the skills that they are developing when they are in that space, using that long-range eyesight to look up into the sky instead of across a room or to a television or or right here by a computer or a phone in their hands. And that right there is developing some of those skills. To follow up on that, on Friday, we had Dirt Day, which was just a muddy, messy, adventurous day with campers. And we handed out a few bird guides during free time. And by the end of the day, they were ticking off without our prompting. They were ticking off the number of birds that they saw and identifying if they were male or female and if it had been in a different habitat. We didn't prompt any of that. We gave them the space to discover and run, watch and observe and listen. And they were helping each other learn in that way. We don't do that when we're on a computer. We're not helping each other. And so this kind of experience, I hope, is going to grow when they go back to their siblings and their cousins and their friends, that they will talk about this experience and build on that. natural when one thinks about education and outdoor time to bring that focus towards kids. Mm -hmm. What are the kinds of experience you're providing to adults? And not least because I wonder how much harder it is for an adult to let down their ego so that they can actually embrace something that they're supposed to um, have, you know, put behind them in childhood. Right. Um, I have three examples that I think show different aspects of how I hope we're accomplishing those kinds of um, goals. One, I mentioned grandparents camp. Bringing kids into the mix with adults really does create a whole new layer of things. What we find is those grandparents are telling stories that have come up because of the walk they took through the cornfield or the soybean field. They will tell about jumping into the hayloft or um, shelling the corn as kids, the young campers are wrapped with attention. And we make room for that. So that storytelling happens organically when we are having those shared experiences. So that's one way that I've seen it happen. Another is in a series that we 
do called Women, Wine, and Wilderness. <laughs> so we'll provide the opportunity for women to, again, set aside technology, spend an evening with a shared meal, conversation, introductions, stories, and some sort of learning experience, whether that's gourmet s'mores over the campfire or learning how to start a garden from seed or doing tai chi or outdoor photography. And that, again, it's that same kind of shared experience where we may go around with an introductory question and all of these threads, these common threads start coming up where um, they are making connections and finding commonalities with people they've never met before. And then in terms of community conversations, uh, we've just begun and we're starting to do more opportunities in the community, whether it's in um, an organized group that meets monthly. We did this with League of Women Voters or with a group of visitors to a brewery on a workshop Wednesday where we're bringing in farmers and food producers who are willing to be asked whatever questions people have. We don't get to do that. And there are a lot of misconceptions about agriculture and the way food is and fiber are produced now. And to be able to have a veterinarian, a food scientist, a rancher, an ag instructor, being there provides that curiosity about where our food comes from and where it will continue coming from for future generations. That's going to be more and more important as things change. The nature of the agricultural industry is itself changing. And you've mentioned some you know, fascinating statistics about this proportion of people that used to live on farms and now it's dwindled to 2%. Yeah. People's perceptions of what agriculture is all about are probably fairly warped in many ways. And I don't know how, how you play a role in perhaps um, bringing more clarity and education around that. Right. We listen to the questions people ask and we try to provide either the answers that we know or the people who know more than we do. Right. That's kind of life. <laughs> Hopefully we're all doing that because there is so much information out there. And often it's hard to verify. More and more, we've got those stimuli coming at us that sometimes we can't even control. And it's also easy to kind of find your avenue for information and stay on it. So what we can do is bring our farmer on site when families are there and they can ride along in the tractor and the combine and the planter and ask questions and be a part of that. So kids see the soybeans before they go in the ground. They get to stand next to the planter when it's shut off, of course. We're always, you know, safety first. See how, where it goes in the planter, how it's distributed in the fields, um, what resources are used to do that. I have learned so much since starting with Prairie Loft 11 years ago. I think back to the ignorant ideas and, and the naivety that I came into this role with, having grown up in Hastings, Nebraska, which is based in an agricultural heritage and economy. No one ever offered me the information about what was happening in the farm fields right around us. So we're trying to change that so that anyone in our area has access to um, walk out into that cornfield or the soybean field, get right there with the cows and find out that these are beef animals and not dairy or what have you. So um, some of the things that I've learned that are just very basic in terms of the technology that does allow 2% of the population to grow food for so many of us, a family farm can have thousands of acres now. That was not the case 100 years ago. 
because of the way that technology has advanced. New, well, not even new necessarily, in the last decade at least, farm equipment emits nothing but water vapor. They're cleaner than vehicles. And so when we talk about the effect that we humans are having on the environment and the atmosphere, we can look at lots of different ways that that happens. And um, there are ways to measure moisture content in the soil where in an acre of dry land field, you use eight gallons of water all year. And that is it. You know, it's fewer passes on a conventional field with the equipment, so it's less fuel used than you would for an organic acre, but the chemical use is different. So there are all these variables that come into play. Even a cornfield helps clean the air. They're green leaves, just like trees. We plant trees to make the air cleaner. Well, green leaves do that no matter where they are. Diversity is key. If we are going to demand fast food joints, we are going to have large productions of animals in feedlots and things like that. The people producing the food are meeting the demand that they see in our society. Sometimes that's a backyard garden. Sometimes that's a feedlot. It depends on what we as a society demand, like any other industry. And so I've learned so much from the people who do this, and they all have different ideas. Again, like any other industry, we can show some of the ways right there up and close that food gets produced. And we can acknowledge that there are many other ways that that might happen, depending on where you are, what you're growing, what the climate's doing, how much it's rained this year, which, again, this year is a totally different situation than we've had in many, many years. That, I think, is the key to understand is that there are lots of correct answers to lots of different questions. Take me outside, sit in the green garden, nobody out there, but it's okay now, bathing in the sunlight, don't mind if rain falls, take me outside, sit in the green garden. a butterfly high as a treetop down again putting my bag down taking my shoes off walking the carpet a green velvet I want to know how you got this way <laughs> which way is that so I, I, I want to say the word outdoorsy ah. but that, that it's, it's not the word right because I think that conjures too many things so um what i want to know is um how you reached this point where you became such an advocate for the experience of the outdoors in the natural world mm -hmm. and so the, the way perhaps i want to get there is to begin by asking you what was your upbringing like i grew up in hastings nebraska in town we spent a lot of time outside in the neighborhood my parents are comfortable in just about any situation you put them in. And growing up, that included camping trips for many, many vacations, um, more than hotel stays and resorts and things like that, far more. 
Um, our grandparents had a camp on Sherman Lake near Loop City, Nebraska, and we would spend weekends there. My dad grew up in Casper, Wyoming, near the mountains, and um, my aunt and grandparents out there loved the mountains. So much of my upbringing was gaining familiarity and comfort with that. And I know that that had a huge effect on where I decided to take my life or where I ended up. Maybe it wasn't intentional. I've always been in awe of, I almost said the minutiae of being outdoors. It's, it's the minutiae of the big picture that, that inspires me and, and brings me awe. There is no way to comprehend the complexity of the systems of our world as a planet. There's always something to learn. There's always something to discover. And it's always changing. You can know a square foot of ground and it's going to be different two days from now. That kind of thing is what keeps me interested every day in what I do, who we are, and how we interact with that. Were you a curious child sort of digging around in, I don't know, the bushes and the garden? and? and yeah. Yeah, very much so. There was a um, lot uh, next to our house, and um, during mulberry season, I would climb the tree and pretty much stay there as long as I could until all of the berries I could reach were gone and I was covered with purple juice. Um, I also have an older brother, and I wanted to be him. I would say like him, but I wanted to be him. And so I followed my older brother, the poor guy. He put up with so much, and... Um, we were typical boys, I guess. <laughs> and so I, I definitely had a healthy respect for the outdoors and the elements of it, but not a lot of fear. That has stuck with me. That's been a real joy to be able to say with kids too, yeah, there's bugs out here. Here's how we can coexist with them and we'll be okay. And we'll let them be okay too. There is a lot of fear these days in society about the outdoors. And right now, this generation of kids in elementary through high school is the first generation whose parents grew up with the internet. So these parents are the first ones to be pulled indoors by that sort of self-controlled technology where TV, your favorite show was on, you went inside. But now... With the internet, it's been much more that rabbit hole phenomenon. And so I think we need to kind of get back to that outdoor curiosity and the pull of the outdoors for kids and grownups alike to make sure that we don't lose that awe that we can really benefit from when we spend time outside of four walls. Did you know when you were younger and, and perhaps moving into your teens that your life would angle itself towards the outdoors? Not at all. Not at all. I think I tend to, f um, I tend to look at situations, think through all possible potential outcomes, bring in the variables that may or may not be involved, work backwards, and then decide what to do which essentially is a complicated way to follow my gut. <laughs> <laughs> I was going to say that doesn't sound like a very uh, 
natural world way of approaching things where where this there's this kind of dynamic disharmony that somehow works in a complex system yeah that sounds very logical that approach i think it's all the those variables those minutiae that i talked about that um trying to observe all of those things at once in order to choose which path to take sometimes literally and that is a very natural outdoorsy sort of thing where do i want to go and how do i get there and which path is the best choice so how then did you get to we'll, we'll get to you coming back to these things but how then did you end up pursuing education outdoor geared programming and, and work-based activity in these other states so, you know what mm -hmm. pulled you away from hastings and took you into this world my first departure from Hastings was as an exchange student. I took a year off after high school and lived in Germany for almost a year after high school before I went to college. It happened to be 1989 and 90, so I lived there when the wall came down. And that was life-changing for a naive girl from small-town Nebraska. I really had my eyes opened to the experiences of people, cultures, um, and w really what it meant to have lived in an oppressive society. I wasn't in East Germany, but it was so much part of the conversation while I was there that it was a crash course in politics and culture and um, the oppressive strength that society can have on a marginalized population. So I started really thinking about other people's experiences. And that served me well, I think, when I went to college. And I went to McAllister College in St. Paul, Minnesota, and thought I was going to major in either English or education. Ended up graduating with three degrees in international studies, German, and music. So pretty typical liberal arts sort of pathway. But through college, in the summers, I worked at outdoor centers and camps. And um, in Minnesota, that is very much part of the everyday culture. People know how to do the outdoors year round. That became part of my routine, part of my psyche, even more than I had been growing up here in Nebraska. And I continued doing that with kind of the uh, combination of typical jobs after college where I was combining lots of different things, working for the Children's Museum, working as a personal attendant for kids with disabilities, working at outdoor centers and camps and adventure programs, and finding my feet and my brain and my bearings. Eventually, that took me to a couple of full-time jobs at outdoor centers, which then took me to other nonprofit jobs and other education jobs, both in schools and outdoors. And that has really combined for me to create this approach to education that a lot of people would call non-traditional because it's outside the four walls of a classroom. I'm a teacher and I've never graded a test. It's fantastic. <laughs> <laughs> when I say I do experiential education, sometimes people will say, what is that? <laughs> well, let's break it down. We're learning through experience. And that's, I believe, how most of us learn best. And the beauty of it, I keep saying this, but the beauty of it is that we're doing it together. And there is a place for solo time. And there is a great need also for that community time of discovery. And I love that I get to learn with people in that way. It has 
been formed through those pathways that I talked about and through following my gut. And I'm still figuring out who I am and what I want to do. My artist bio says when Amy grows up, she wants to be an enigma. And I'm still figuring that out. I am my own enigma because I think there are lots of ways that each of us can fit in the world, and maybe not all of them are defined yet. You know love makes the world go round And love, baby, makes the seesaws go up and down And it makes trees grow tall And the most important thing of all It makes a boy and girl, oh, say they feel so fine now Without love, flowers wouldn't grow in spring. And without spring, here, yeah, the British just couldn't see. Yeah, yeah, everybody needs love. And to watch the twinkling stars above, it makes a boy and girl, here. Yeah, Say they feel so fine now. Why did you move back to Hastings? Mm. Both a push and a pull. I was feeling like I was ready to be pushed out of the big city. I loved Minneapolis-St. Paul for the community that it is, and yet found that it was hard to escape the stimuli. There's always something coming at you in an urban setting, whether it's traffic or billboards or noise or concrete. And after 18 years, I think that I had had my fill. I found a wonderful community in the Twin Cities, and I'm still very close to that group of people that I fell in love with. And yet I was feeling a need to go back to my roots and find a place in the middle of everywhere in or near Hastings, and it happened that Hastings had what I was looking for. I had started putting out feelers for a career move or a job or a life decision and um, wasn't getting positive or appealing responses when the Prairie Loft Board reached out to me. My parents still live in Hastings, and of course, people know who, what kids are doing what, and I hadn't really even told them that I was starting to look because, you know, parents get a little excited when you start talking about that kind of thing. But it was serendipity, and it worked out very well. Um, I came and talked to the board at the time. Um, no one was working at Prairie Loft. They had some plans in place, but no one to implement them. I had much of the background that they were looking for, but none of the farming expertise. And... They challenged me on that, and I said, I'll learn from whomever I can find to teach me, and let's figure this out together. And I'm just so pleased that it worked out. That was 11 years ago. Um, I am in a community that feels very much like home to me. I'm close to my parents. I'm close to many, many friends and a group of community leaders who are really doing incredible things. When I moved back, a lot of people sort of looked at me a little bit of askance, just like, that's a small place. 
How How is that going to work out for you? And I think I am a small town girl at heart as much as I love both no town at all or the big city now and then. The way I think of it is that, you know, the, the image of big fish, little pond makes some amount of sense. But by moving, we don't change the fish we are. I am still the same fish. In a smaller pond, maybe I can make ripples that more easily reach the edges and more easily interact with other people's ripples. And so that change that I was making with education programs that I was involved in in Minneapolis felt important. And yet those ripples didn't feel like I was getting very far into the community beyond those individual lives. Here, I hope that I can help create a community culture that is welcoming, inclusive, expansive, and moving forward in a way that really is healthy for everybody. It seems interesting to me, and maybe this is uh, an observation or observations that are a stretch too far. To continue that metaphor of, of swimming uh, as, as a fish, you are swimming in some ways against the tide. The tide of population movement is away from rural landscapes right. into urban landscapes. Mm -hmm. And you have done the opposite. And yet... There also seems to be this disintegrating institutional memory around activities like farming, canning, tanneries, right. how we do that. And that's also being met by a countervailing force, which might be demeaned as being somewhat cool and hipsterish. But this idea of trying to get back to the land and understanding mm -hmm. how we can live in greater harmony with our natural world. And so there you are going back into this rural landscape in a way that seems to sate your innate human need, mm -hmm. but also maybe more intentionally with regards to having greater impact in the community. So do you recognize yourself in, in this? I think so. And I hope that what I am doing is part of a movement that's headed in the right direction. And has continued through the generations and maybe has a different character now, um, where there are threads that connect the rural and the urban that could be woven together a little bit better. And maybe we can find ways to do that in some of these um, approaches toward education and community and engagement sorts of endeavors. I would use the word leader to describe <laughs> you. And it Thank seems you. that that has taken, I think that's probably been true of you for many years. Uh, for example, taking a gap year mm -hmm. in the late 80s. I would say that's very uncommon right. for um, most Americans. Yes. So that in its own way was, I think, illustrative of you being a leader. Hmm. But in more recent overt terms, your role with Humanities Nebraska, the elements in your bio in the Hastings and Nebraska communities. But then also off mic, we were talking about some of the plans you have for this larger space that is Prairie Loft. Yes. So maybe just take you know a few minutes to talk about some of these ways that you are trying to bridge these spaces, either rural, urban, uh, agricultural, industrial, small community, big community. Absolutely. And that's a huge question for me because I think there are approaches and there are ideas and there are trends that all work to either strengthen or undermine those sorts of things. And I do want to say, too, that, well, first of all, thank you for, for calling me a leader. 
I hope that I'm a I, I hope that I'm someone with ideas that do make the place where we are, I've said it before, but more inclusive and expansive and and welcoming and empathetic. That's kind of what I've been thinking about as much as anything lately in a very unformed idea that I have, I would love to find ways like you do, Stuart, to create conversation. We, we don't ask questions of each other enough, in my opinion. And something that I've been trying to do more lately, and I, I admit that I'm not as good at it as I would like to be, but I want to interject into my everyday conversation the phrase, can you help me understand? We have so many misconceptions and assumptions about each other's stories, and it forms opinions that can be, we might really be missing out personally, selfishly. <laughs> I could be missing out on a great experience because I've assumed something about someone from whatever I may be familiar with. I want to challenge myself, and I want to ask people if I might get a glimpse into what they know and what they've experienced in a way that's not invasive and intrusive and all of that, of course. But I think empathy is more important now than it's ever been since we became a more virtual communicating society. Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. It's really easy to put something out there without accepting something in return with social media, with technology of all kinds, and that's seeping into our face-to-face -face interactions with each other. Can you help me understand is a question that I think is going to be really important to share with each other and start sitting back and listening more than we spout off, <laughs> which I think... <laughs> I don't mean to sound like we're lost. We're not. I think we are probably in a really good place to find where we're supposed to be and who we are with each other. Um, in full disclosure, you have toured me around Prairie Loft, mm -hmm. and that was a fun day. We really did tour the pasture and everywhere. Kind of went very much off the beaten path. Well, so I I had the good fortune then to experience. I, I am one of those people for whom the outdoors has a vaguely intimidating aura. Really, it's not that I don't enjoy it, but I'm. I've always been a creature of a more urban environment. Mm -hmm. And so I love to be outdoors, but it's easy to um, get intimidated mm -hmm. by this sense of the unknown. Right. Well, at least it is for me. And I, I have two thoughts about being kind of toured around Prairie Loft by you. And, but you touched on that fear. 
And I, I'm curious about how you think about your role in bringing people into the outdoors. And this may be a little little too far, but almost like you're an evangelist <laughs> preaching the word of the natural world, which I think, as you say, we are slowly receding from. Mm-hmm. So are you an evangelist for the outdoors? And I hope I'm a guide. Hmm? I think that's a word that gets used a lot in outdoor endeavors as, you know, wilderness guides and things like that. Um, our instructors, our educators are called program guides. And I got that from a mentor who was an educator in Minneapolis many years ago, just kind of a phrase for teaching tips in general, where we see a traditional Western way of teaching as a sage on the stage. And this mentor encouraged us to be the guide on the side. So it's kind of, there they go. I must hurry and catch up with them, for I am their leader. I want to provide opportunities for people to make their own discoveries and be there to provide a safety net if they need it. It's kind of the the idea of having a comfort zone where everything is familiar and we're very solidly set in our comfort zone for the most part. We don't learn anything there. It's only when we step out of that circle into a stretch zone. This is one model that I've heard and used. The stretch zone is where there's some new element added to the familiar. And any new element in our lives is going to teach us something. That expands the comfort zone then, so then it also stretches that stretch zone. Once you get past that stretch zone, as humans, we tend to panic. It's fight or flight. The reptilian brain kicks in. And you've got to find a way to get back to that comfort zone before you can stretch again. So I hope that as a guide, I can provide safety if someone's reaching that panic zone to be able to say, oh, that's a lace wing, not a mosquito. You can just brush it off. It's not going to hurt you. Or watch and see what it does while it's sitting there on your arm. Or that's a kind of spider that won't bite. Let's watch and see what it does. Don't step on the spider, you know, <laughs> whatever it may be, just to to be that reassurance if fear does start to creep in and to help share those moments of awe. When we are fascinated, it's hard to be frightened. So when when you did show me around, there was a noticeable shift in who you were, how you showed hmm. up. Once we exited the built structure, which itself oh. was lovely, mm-hmm. and moved into the, the natural world around us sure. in Prairie Loft, can you describe how you feel when you are outdoors at Prairie Loft? I'll use the word fascinated again. Um, even when I'm all by myself, I will find myself laughing out loud sometimes. Because I'll see something that's just so cool. <laughs> um, and I should say that as executive director of a private nonprofit with 75 acres, I also feel stressed out sometimes because I look around and I see weeds that need to be pulled or the barn that needs paint or a place that could be a potential hazard for the next group. And I need to get that taken care of. So it's this odd mix of joy and responsibility and belonging that has provided a home for me, I guess. When we were there 
there was that squirrel moment, except it wasn't a squirrel. Uh, it, it was um, two herons that flew overhead. Oh, yes. And we were talking and you instantly just snapped away mm-hmm. and were giddy and just pointed up and, and you know, shouted, look, herons. blue herons. <laughs> Kids were doing that a couple of days ago. They saw a goldfinch. I hadn't taught them what the goldfinch was. They saw a yellow bird and looked it up in their book. And then they couldn't stop talking about the goldfinch. And that sort of joy of learning is exactly what I hope that all of us at Prairie Loft, who are our mission, can bring to anyone involved. And that I can, to some extent, personally and professionally, um, in the roles that I'm so privileged to play where I am. in conversation with Amy Sandine, Executive Director of Prairie Loft Center for Outdoor and Agricultural Learning in Hastings, Nebraska. Amy, thank you for being on the show. Such a pleasure. Thank you, Stuart. Farms. I'm going to start that over. Can I do that? This is exactly how it's going to play. (laughs) Right. That's the end of this week's show. The magnificent Marion Fay helped produce the show. Lives is an executive production of Squish Talks. I'm your host, Stuart Chittenden. Join me next week for more community, conversation, and the people that bring community to life.